Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew 2 and remain standing as we read the word. And while you're doing that, a couple of quick announcements. Uh, the first one is there is no college group meeting for the next two weeks. Been asked to remind everybody on that one. And then the other one, and not meaning to embarrass her, but I am uh, uh, pleased and, and happy that my daughter Jessica is visiting from, uh, from Washington uh, for this week. Many of you recall she, is, she was the uh, church administrative assistant for a while, um, but she's moved up there and is uh, um, now living and working in, in Woodenville, Washington. So follow along with me as we read Matthew 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will, be, who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son." Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. That, was spoke, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. You may be seated. Father, as we look into your word this morning, we pray your blessing. Father, help us to have ears to hear. Father, eyes to see. Hearts to understand and follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, last week we looked at the birth of Christ as reported to the shepherds in Luke 2. And this was the first revelation of the gospel, the good news, if you recall. And the angel who first appeared to the shepherds announced the birth of Messiah, the anointed one whom Israel was expecting. And then a multitude of angels appeared praising God. They gave glory to God. They announced that there would be peace between God and man. They said that this was at the pleasure of God. And that this was an announcement of the advent of our own salvation. And after the angels left, the shepherds responded by going quickly to Bethlehem to see the things that God had revealed to them. And they found Joseph and Mary and Jesus. The shepherds shared with others what they'd been told. They were the first evangelists. The people wondered, but Mary treasured up all these things. And this all resulted in the shepherds glorifying and praising God. Now this morning we're going to continue the story. We're going to look at who else received a report of Jesus' birth. We're going to look at how they responded. And we're going to look at the result of that. So a little background for you. In Luke, we ended where we began in Bethlehem and in the region of Judea, and this is where the shepherds were. Now the scene shifts to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is about six miles north of Bethlehem. For us, it's closer than Hollister is to San Juan Batista, to give you kind of an idea. Not quite as far as it is from Target to Bellotto Park. Herod was the king in that region. And this was Herod the Great. He wasn't Jewish. He wasn't from Israel. He was Idumean, which means he was a descendant of Esau. You recall Esau was Jacob's brother. He did marry a Jewish woman of the Hasmonean house, so he married a, an Israel woman. Now, Herod the Great was a great builder. He was a, a public works kind of guy. He built a temple in Jerusalem, restored it. He built a port in Caesarea, he built palaces, theaters, fortresses. He loved to build. And a lot of the building that happened there was because of his vision and foresight. But Herod was a paranoid and a very cruel man. He had his wife's brother drowned. He had his wife killed. He had his mother-in-law killed. He had three of his own sons killed. He was worried about people who were trying to usurp his throne. Herod ruled from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. So this means that Jesus must have been born considerably before the year 1 A.D. And given the later context in verse 16 that we'll see, Jesus is no longer a newborn, but he's less than two years old. So that would put Jesus' birth no later than about 6 B.C. Now, some think Jesus was born in the fall... Definitely not December 25th. And this makes sense because the shepherds, when they were out during the night, um, from March to November, it was warm enough for them to be out at night watching the flocks. Why do we choose December 25th then to celebrate his birth? Well, it was chosen because it coincided with the Roman holiday of Saturnalia. And then we come to the wise men or the magi. Not too much is known about them. The name Magi comes from the Greek word magos, and it refers to men who studied astronomy, the magic arts, books, mysteries, dreams. Um, they were looking at all of these different things. They're thought to be from the Persian or the Babylonian empires. 
And we don't know how many of them there were. The Bible doesn't tell us. Now, in the song, We Three Kings of Orient are, um, one, we don't know that they were kings. We know that they were magi, but we don't know that they were kings. And we deduce the number three because they gave three gifts. But that doesn't mean that there were only three, and it's probably unlikely that there were only three of them. They had to travel all the way into uh, Judea, and it's dangerous to travel with the precious cargo that they had, the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh, and only three people to guard it. That wouldn't be very wise. And there could have been many more, but these three gifts are what stood out and were probably the combined offerings of all of the magi that came. So some would contribute gold, others would contribute some gold, some would contribute the frankincense, the myrrh, but these are the ones that stand out, and there's a significance to them. Their names do not appear in Matthew, even though they are named some five centuries later. We don't know their names. Now, interestingly, Acts 13.6 uses the same term for a man named Elimus, the magician. Now, Elimus was not a good guy. Paul pronounced a judgment on Elimus, causing him to become blind. So I really hesitate to call them wise. Proverbs 9.10 tells us, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But these men studied dreams, astrologies, arts, magic. They were definitely not followers of Yahweh. But this is what we have with them, the Magi. So with all this said, let's look to our first point. And I've titled this, The Report, just like last week, The Report. And we find this first in Matthew 2, 1 and 2. Now, Je now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. They have come from the east, but notice they didn't go directly to Herod. Instead, they were going about the city or about the region inquiring where Jesus was. Anybody know where Jesus is? We, or they don't know his name, but they're, they're asking about who, who this baby is and where they can find him. But notice that they said that they, have, they are looking for the king of the Jews. They didn't say the one who is to become the king of the Jews. They already recognized the baby born is the king of the Jews. He was already king. And they said that they had seen his star. Uh, we don't know what that star was. There have been all kinds of articles published on that. Was it a comet? Was it a, a meteor? Um, was it something supernatural? Something, perhaps it was an angel. And when you think about it, angels figured into many previous announcements about Jesus. An angel appeared to Zechariah to tell him that his wife Elizabeth would give birth to the baby who would become John the Baptist. An angel appeared to Mary to tell her that she would be the mother of the Messiah. An angel appeared to Joseph to tell him the same thing, that Mary was pregnant with a child and that this was the Holy One. An angel appeared to the shepherds and then more angels appeared to the shepherds. So it's not unlikely that it was an angel casting a bright light that showed the Magi where to go. And as we see in verse 9 later, this light moved. It didn't, it didn't stay in one place. It moved as the Magi did, showing them the way they should go. We're not told how the Magi knew that this star was because of Christ. 
But still, it must mean something about the promises of the coming Messiah. They knew something about it. Remember, they studied. They knew mysteries and religion. They devoted their lives to understanding these things. So we pick up in Matthew 2, 3, and 4. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Now, Herod's in his palace. The Magi are going around asking questions, which means they've been around there for a little bit of time. And the word gets to Herod, hey, these, these people, these guys from the east, and they're, they're asking about this king of the Jews, this, this Messiah, who, who is this? What, what's going on? And Herod is troubled because he sees a budding threat to his throne. He sees someone who will usurp his authority. And remember, he kills people who want to get in his way. Now, all Jerusalem is troubled too. Remember, the shepherds rejoiced at this news. They were happy to hear of the birth of the Messiah, the anointed one, Christ the Lord. But Jerusalem doesn't rejoice. Weren't they anticipating the Messiah? The shepherds were. Now, it might be that when we talk about all Jerusalem, they're talking about the political and religious leaders, and they saw a threat to their lifestyle and their positions because they had positions of power. Or it could be that the people in Jerusalem were afraid of Herod's reaction. He's known to be a murderous guy. And we later find out that that's exactly what happened. But it appears from the very start that they were rejecting the coming one. The shepherds went and sought him. They wanted to go find this Jesus or this Christ, the one that was born. But the people in Jerusalem didn't do that. They're rejecting him. And we see this play out during Jesus' life and at the end of his life. Their hearts were hard even then, even when he was first announced. Already Satan was blinding them to the gospel. Just as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. People today are blinded also. People see Jesus proclaimed during the Christmas season, but their hearts are hardened so they cannot see the true light. Brothers and sisters, we must persevere in bringing the light of Jesus to a world in darkness. Herod calls the chief priests and the scribes. Now, the chief priests were the Sadducees, and the scribes were the Pharisees. That's where they came from, their their different sects. And, And those guys didn't get along a whole lot. He calls them for more information. And it's not likely that they came together because they don't like each other. So Herod probably called one group in and Paul called another group in. He's a scheming kind of guy, so this makes sense. He wants to get his information from different areas, but he doesn't want to cross-contaminate what he knows. Herod didn't ask about a king. He wanted to know where the Christ would be born. Herod, who supposedly practiced Judaism knew enough about the prophecy and the promise, but not enough to know the details. So he called and asked for some information. All too often, people learn only a little bit about Jesus, but not enough to recognize him or know the details of who he really is. 
And this is why we need to study our Bibles, not just read it occasionally, so that we can readily recognize what God has revealed to us in his word. And you knew it was coming. Here's the plug for the reading plans out in the back. I'm encouraging you to take one of those and read your Bibles in 2016. Study your Bibles. It's going to become so much more crucial during this next year as we see events unfolding around us. We need to be light to a world in darkness. And we can only be a light if we know what that light is. Be prepared to give a defense for the reason of the hope that is in you. Well, let's look at verses 5 and 6. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The priests and the scribes are reporting what the prophet Micah has said. They knew where the Christ was to be born. And so when asked, they told Herod, this is what the prophet Micah has said. And they also quote that the coming ruler will shepherd the people of God. Now, we looked at shepherds last week briefly. Recall that Israel's leaders were compared to bad shepherds. But in John 10, Jesus said that he is the good shepherd. Now, a little aside on this, this verse that is quoted in, in 6 is not a direct quote of Matthew 5.2. I'm sorry, of Micah 5.2. If you look at Micah 5.2, you'll see the words are a little different. Matthew often paraphrased what was said. For example, in Ezekiel 32, we see that the ruler of the people is compared to a shepherd. So hence, the coming ruler would shepherd God's people. And this is what Matthew is saying, that this person who would come would be the ruler, but would shepherd the people of Israel. So this is the report that came about Jesus' birth. And now let's look at point two, the response. Let's see how people responded. Well, we look in Matthew 2, 7 and 8. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now picture the scene. Herod has now done his homework. He has called in the Sadducees, the priests. He hears from them. He's called in the scribes, the Pharisees, and he's heard from them. And now armed with this information, he calls in the Magi. But you notice he did this secretly. He didn't hold a big court and have them come in and publicly testify. He brought them in secretly. Herod doesn't want to know or doesn't want people to know what it is he is doing. He's already forming his plot. He's scheming with what he's going to do. And he didn't have a change of mind later. He knew what Jesus' birth meant for him personally. And he didn't want to submit or give up his primacy in the kingdom. Isn't this the way all sinners act? They don't want to submit to God. They form plans to submit his message. They form plans to do away with him, to silence him in the community. We don't want to hear the name of Jesus spoken. Herod learns from the Magi when the star first appeared. 
Now, this information is important for determining when the child might have been born. He wanted to know how old this baby would be. Notice that he doesn't offer to go with the Magi, even though Bethlehem is only six miles away. Would have been nothing for him to saddle up a camel and head on out. Six miles. No, he sends the Magi to Bethlehem, directing them to search diligently for the child. Now, the NASB translation, if you have the New American Standard Bible, says he told them to search carefully. That is perhaps a better word in this, in this sense. Um, if he were to have his own people do the search, it might raise suspicions. So he wants them to be careful. He wants to pinpoint where Jesus is. He wants his answer, but he wants the right answer so he can go directly to the child and work his scheme. But he also lies to them. He says he wants to go worship them. He has absolutely no intention. This is, in fact, a bold-faced lie to them. Well, then we looked at verses 9 through 12. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So here we have the Magi heading out, and they're following the star. Now, you note that the star they had seen earlier went before them. And it came to rest over the place where Jesus was. This is what we referred to earlier about the star moving. That perhaps it was an angel lighting the way for them because the star moved and, and then came to rest finally. So it wasn't stationary. As the Magi moved, the star moved, and they kept following it. And we need to consider a couple things with this. If the star was moving, and they could follow this star, and they were seeking Christ, why didn't the star just take them right to Bethlehem? Why didn't, why didn't he just take them there? Why the need to go inquire and ask about? Why did they have to go to Jerusalem first? Had they gone directly to Bethlehem, they could have avoided Herod, avoid the controversy of everything that happened. But that wasn't God's plan. We don't always understand why God does what God does, but he's God. And we must always remember that his wisdom and his will are perfect even when we don't understand. This was in God's plan to take them first to Jerusalem. Then verse 10 tells us that when they saw the star, they rejoiced. Now, this must indicate that the star had faded while they were there. They were in Jerusalem. They're not seeing the star. They're not following along anywhere. It must have faded or gone out of their view while they were there in Jerusalem asking around. But now that they're back on the trail, now that they're headed back, they find out where they were to go, the star reappears. Now, look at the words here. It says, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They were happy campers. They considered their search of the utmost importance. This was their primary thing they were out to do. So when they saw the star again, they were thrilled. I ask you, how about you? 
Do you rejoice exceedingly with a great joy when you seek Christ? The Bible has all we need to find him. Psalm 119, says, Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. Verse 162 says, I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil, finds great riches, finds great treasure. Do we rejoice as we seek Christ, just as the Magi did? Now in verse 11, we read that the Magi go into the house and there they see the baby. They see Mary with him. And what do they do? Well, we're told in verse 11 that they fell down and worshipped him. They did not worship Mary. They worshipped Jesus alone. Now, falling down is a normal behavior when coming into the presence of God himself. Do you remember the, the song we just sang talked about everyone fall down? When the glory of the Lord filled the temple in Jerusalem at the time of Solomon... The people bowed down with their faces on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord. Psalm 22 tells us that before him all shall bow. When Satan tempted Jesus, he wanted Jesus to fall down and worship him. And on the road to Damascus, Paul fell to the ground when surrounded by the glory of Christ. When we are in his presence... We humble ourselves. We fall down. We cannot stand in the true presence of God. We must fall down and worship. See, it's not remarkable in itself unless you consider, though, that these were pagan astrologers. They did not know about Jesus' divinity. They didn't worship Yahweh. But even then, falling down before Christ should not surprise us. Philippians 2.11 tells us that the name, at, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So today I ask you, what is your reaction to Christ? Do you fall to the ground and worship your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you humble in your heart before him? The Magi gave him gifts. They didn't give Mary gifts. They gave gifts to Jesus. And we're told they gave three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, gold is long recognized as one of the most valuable metals we have. It was used in the temple, and it's a symbol of royalty and nobility. Frankincense is a costly and beautiful-smelling perfume. It's used at the altar for special occasions. And this is seen as a symbol of Christ's deity. And then myrrh is also a perfume less expensive than frankincense, but it was still very valuable. When mixed with wine, it became an anesthetic. And myrrh is used in embalming. This is seen as a symbol of Christ's humanity. But I would also note other symbolism in there. Gold is used in palaces, kings. Frankincense is used in offering, priests and myrrh used with humans. These also relate to the person who is both king and priest, the man, Christ Jesus. Now the Magi probably did not understand all of this. They were just giving him some very expensive gifts. But God, to his own glory, works in the hearts of men to cause them to do things they don't always understand. And in this case, we see the symbolism here. And it could also be noted that these gifts were probably very helpful in financing Joseph, Mary, and Jesus' escape to Egypt when the time came. 
Now in verse 12, the Magi fade from the scene. They're warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. Remember, these guys are interpreters of dreams. So they would do what they saw in a dream. They would have no problem being directed to go home by a different way. And that's what they do. So then we pick up at verses 13 and 14. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. In another dream, an angel tells Joseph and Mary and Jesus to flee. Now, Egypt was about 90 miles from Bethlehem. God specifically told Joseph why he is to leave. He said that Herod's going to search for the child. He wants to destroy him. So Joseph knows he is to flee the sinful and deadly actions of Herod. There is such an urgency that they left by night. They didn't just pack up and announce to everybody they're leaving. They left at night. They got up and got out of town while no one was watching. They fled. Paul tells us, just as Joseph uh, fled the sinful and deadly actions of Herod, Paul tells us to flee from the sins such as sexual immorality, idolatry, youthful passions. All sin is deadly, whether it's Herod's sin or our own sin. Sin is deadly. And I ask you, do we flee from the sin as the same urgency that Joseph fled from Egypt? Now, Matthew writes that Joseph, Mary, and Jesus stayed in Egypt until Herod died. He notes that this fulfilled the prophecy of Hosea 11.1. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Now the context of Hosea 11.1 is about Israel. It's not a prediction. This is rather a, a typology. Israel collectively is referred to as God's son. In Exodus 4.22, Moses is told to say to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. And if Pharaoh will not let Israel go, then God would kill Pharaoh's firstborn son. And indeed, this applied to all of Egypt. So Matthew is drawing a parallel to Israel, whom God called out of exile in Egypt. And in doing so, God delivered his people from their oppressor. Jesus was called out of exile in Egypt to deliver his people from their sin. This then is what is referred to as a type or a typology or a model. Now we can do whole sermons on typologies and on models. Um, just to give you an idea of what they are, think for a moment of Noah and the ark. God saves a remnant through the ark. That's a typology of Christ. Think of Abraham and Isaac. Abraham offers his firstborn son, the son of promise, a typology. This use of type is Matthew's way of pointing to past prophecy and how prophecy points to Christ. Remember that Jesus himself said that the law, the prophets, and the Psalms all pointed to him. Then in the next verses, Matthew turns back to Herod. It says, picking up in, in, in Egypt, he, was departed, he departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. 
She refused to be comforted because they are no more. We don't know how much later Herod came to realize he'd been hoodwinked by the Magi. It couldn't have been too much later given Bethlehem's proximity to to Jerusalem. Yet it was long enough for the Magi to leave and for Joseph to flee. Now consistent with Herod's character, he becomes furious. Nebuchadnezzar was furious when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not bow down to him. In Revelation 12, the dragon is furious with the woman who had given birth to the male child. How many times do people become furious at the mere mention of Christ and his followers? Herod orders that all the male children two years and younger who lived in Bethlehem and in the region should be killed. Now, some think this was a massive undertaking. But in reality, given the small size of Bethlehem and the rural nature of everything out there, it might have been couple of dozen, maybe 20 kids, somewhere in there. But still, this is a heinous act of a sinful man who is looking out for his own glory, not that of God. Now, before we get too incensed at Herod, I want you to consider this. Herod had babies killed in order to eliminate any competition to his rule and lifestyle. In America today, people kill babies for the same reason. It would be competition for their affections of another. The babies would interfere with their plans or lifestyles. Having a baby would be just too expensive. We call it abortion. But in reality, we're killing babies created in the image of God. Only we do so in the hundreds of thousands every year. Compared to Herod's killing of a couple of dozen In 2011, we killed over 730,000 babies. Evil is present in our world today, just as it was in the days of Jesus. Now, Matthew tells us that Herod's actions fulfilled a prophecy by Jeremiah. We're going to turn to Jeremiah 31 real quick to see what that prophecy is. We find it in Jeremiah 31, 15. Thus says the Lord... A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Rachel is often seen as representing Israel as well. Ramah is north of Jerusalem, about five miles or so. Remember, Herod had all the male babies, two years and younger, killed in Bethlehem and in all that region. So Ramah would have been included. The context of this quote deals with Israel's exile. Rachel, who was long since dead at the time this was written, is weeping for her children, Israel, because they're being carried off into exile. All is lost. She has no hope. And hence, there is no hope in Israel. But you cannot read Jeremiah 31.15 in a vacuum. We have to look at Jeremiah 31.16 and 17 to go along with it. And this is what the prophet says. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. Far from being one of total lament, this is a passage of hope. And then we look at what that hope is, and we find it in Jeremiah 31 
31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declared the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more it is here that God promises a new covenant and this is the covenant the new covenant to which Jesus refers on the night of the last supper the significance of this passage is that sovereign God acts to preserve his anointed one God has done this throughout Israel's history. He has always preserved a remnant, even when Israel was in exile. Israel was never and has never been completely wiped out. And neither has the line of David from whom the Messiah would come. Matthew showed us in chapter 1 that Jesus was from the line of David by listing his genealogy. Israel was delivered from her enemies and returned to her land. Jesus is delivered from his enemy and returns to the land. Moses is showing us here that God is still faithful. He protected and preserved his anointed one so that Jesus could indeed announce and inaugurate the new covenant. And today, God is still faithful. We are promised that through Jesus, we will all be delivered from our enemies. And all this is done to the glory of God. Then Matthew wraps up, wraps up his account with verses 19 through 23. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Verse 19 starts with, when Herod died. Herod was judged in life. Josephus wrote that Herod died of ulcerated entrails, putrefied and maggot-filled organs. Hebrews 9.17 tells us that it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Herod will be judged by the very God he tried to kill. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now Matthew writes that an angel appeared, even yet again to Joseph, and told him to go back to Israel. And Joseph settles in Galilee to avoid being under the rule of Archelaus, who was Herod's son. Archelaus was cruel to the Jews and sent soldiers to attack them. In fact, he was so violent that Augustus banished him to Gaul about nine years later. Archelaus was the brother of Antipas and Philip. And although the main successor of the three each ruled a portion of Herod's land, Archelaus ruled one half, and Antipas and Philip each ruled one quarter. And this is why Antipas and Philip were called tetrarchs, because they ruled that one quarter of the kingdom. And Antipas ruled in Galilee. And you may remember Antipas was the one who married Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. 
His behavior was condemned by John the Baptist, and he had John beheaded. And it was Antipas to whom Pilate sent Jesus before Jesus was crucified. And Antipas treated Jesus with contempt when he was before him. Now, in verse 23, we read that they lived in Nazareth. Matthew says this is to fulfill what the prophet said, he shall be called a Nazarene. But we don't know of any prophets that said this. You won't find that in the Bible. Nazareth had a terrible reputation. It's attributed to the violence that went on in the city, to the lax morals, to the crude language they spoke. Remember, when Nathaniel was first told of Jesus, and he heard that Jesus was from Nazareth, Nathaniel asked, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Matthew's point in all this is that Jesus was despised just as the Old Testament prophesied. And this was another confirmation that Jesus is the Messiah. So why did I entitle this sermon, Jesus, Our Promise from the Past, Comfort in the Present, and Hope for the Future? Well, Matthew 2 is more than just a narrative of what happened 2,000 years ago. It shows us the ages-old battle where Satan is raging against God. But God promised a victor, one who would defeat death and Satan. And it's readily apparent from reading Matthew 2 that Jesus is the one promised from the past. Matthew goes to great lengths in his gospel to prove that. But how is Jesus our comfort in the present? In Matthew 2, we get a glimpse of the wickedness in the past. Herod was every bit as violent and evil as the worst of our generation. Jerusalem and all Judea were in fear of him and his son Archelaus. Today, we have a wickedness of the present. We have terrorism abounding. We're afraid overseas. We're afraid at home. As in Jesus' time, there are those who hate the name of Christ and they seek to kill his followers. But God preserved his son as he preserved Israel and as he will preserve a remnant even today. Herod could not kill Jesus. Instead, Herod will be judged by him, as will all the wicked. Their judgment is coming too. God was in control then, and he is in control today. Nothing happens outside his ordained will. Jesus told Pilate that Pilate would have no authority over him unless it was given to him from above. Jesus said that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. In Revelation, we're told that he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. It is this Jesus who died for your sins. It is this Jesus from whose love nothing can separate you, not death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. In Hebrews we read, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? Jesus tells us not to fear the one who can kill the body but not the soul, but rather we're to fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. We have nothing to fear, for we will not face the judgment or the wrath of God, no matter what happens on this earth. Jesus, the promised one, the one who defeated Herod, will defeat the evildoers of our day. Indeed, he has already done so. And he is our hope. Just as Israel had hope of the Messiah for their deliverance, Jesus is the hope 
of our salvation. He is the hope of our resurrection. Jesus accomplished what he came to earth to do on Christmas Day. All the evil in the world of that day could not stop him. And all the gates of hell shall not prevail over his church today or in the future. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we've looked into this account, in our hearts we bow down to you, Father. We worship you. You are sovereign God who promised to send his anointed one and who did, who promised to send a deliverer and he delivered us from our sin. Father, Christ is our comfort. What can man do to us? Nothing can separate us from your love. And he is our hope. We know that our future is secure. That our resurrection is secure. Our salvation is secure in Jesus Christ. Father, help us always to hold on to that. Hold on to the promise, the comfort, and the hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 